the guy that started Green Black's Chocolate used to do the mac- macrobiotic food at UFO. <gasps> I did not know that. No. Lives in Hastings now. They all, they've all moved to Hastings. I don't think it's... Uh, I've got a friend who's a chocolate. and dirty, a chocolate the texture. Term. Green and black. Mm, There's a not... really good website called Cocoa Lovers, which if you're really into, into uh, chocolate, they send you a sampler box every month. Truly amazing chocolates with fabulous packaging from all over the world, and it's all single estate, the best. Once you taste that green and black, you realise it's, mm. it's crap. I know. It's just not I mean, very good chocolate. It's like, mm. I remember when I was growing up, my parents, who were middle class, started drinking La Pierre d'Or. Remember that wine? Yeah. Yeah. It was wine, very classy. J'adore le Pierre. Yeah, j'adore le Pierre. They didn't yeah. shadow it, it for was, very it long. Was, it, was, it was sort of I beyond can... Mathias Rosé, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, a little That's bit beyond That's what Julie Birchall said about erotic review readers when Chris Hart, for some reason, phoned her up and asked her to do a book review. So she took great delight in turning it down and getting a column out of it and saying they were like DHSS snoops who sort of drank Piat Door. And I thought the only, <laughs> the only possible retort to that was, yes, we love Piat Door. We frankly drink anything. But at the end of the party, we are the people going into your parents' sort of drinks cabinet and emptying it of every revolting... But you're Piat Dooring my uh, Green and Blacks, aren't you? They're but like slightly, yesterday's yeah. news. Well, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just not saying that estate. it's... it's uh, yeah. It, it's that thing, isn't it? Like a lot, it's just ordinary chocolate with a nice packaging on it. Yeah, I mean, the, the idea of a cho- cho- chocolate tasting menu, which is Cocoa Runners say we can organise a chocolate tasting okay. event. You just think it's just madness. Isn't this it? is very good. This is very good. There's a, I, I like Guilty the package. Oh, <laughs> chocolat. Oh my word! It's right that we should be talking about chocolate on this particular podcast, as we will, as we will soon as, discover. As yeah, I didn't even think of that. Should we start? Yeah. Topics, to be Hello and welcome to the Backlisted Podcast. Once more, we're gathered around the kitchen table of our sponsors Unbound, the website that brings authors and readers together to create good things to read. I'm John Mitchinson, publisher of the aforementioned Unbound. Uh, and I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. And this is Backlisted, a podcast where we aim to give new life to old books. <laughs> we're joined, we're joined as usual by uh, author and working father Matthew Clayton. <laughs> Hello, Matthew. And joining us for this edition of the show is columnist, broadcaster, occasional stand-up, and uh, the Daily Mail's resident sexpert. No, actually, they got just got rid of me. Did they? Oh, <laughs> oh, it's okay. a tragedy. Joining us for this edition of the show is columnist, broadcaster, occasional stand-up, and until very recently, Daily Mail's resident <laughs> sexpert, until she decided to go off and pursue interests. <laughs> no, that's even worse. <laughs> Rowan Pelling. Rowan's book choice, which we'll be talking about in a moment, is Darkness Falls from the Air by Nigel Balkin, or Bolchin, we don't know which, and we will probably interchange between the two during the course of the podcast. But uh, again, we find ourselves face-to-face, Andy, (laughs) Yes. and the question I feel I must ask you, (laughs) always slightly depressingly, more than anyone else has ever read in the history of the world, but what have you been reading this week? What have I been reading? Uh, There's an interesting conundrum with doing this podcast now where I keep discovering writers we've done on previous months or weeks that I, what I actually want to do is be reading another JL Carr or another Gene Reese or another Shirley Hazard but I have to find new things outside outside the are we perverting your reading programme in it some seems sort of dramatic to, way it seems to be yeah well you'll see why in a minute um, but um, so, so this week uh, I've been reading Diary of a Provincial Lady 
by E.M. Delafield. Have you ever read The Diary of a Provincial Lady? No, I haven't. Yeah, I feel, as often with these books, I feel sort of I have. Yeah. Was it adapted for television at any point? It has been adapted for television. It was also adapted for radio about six or seven years ago with Imelda Staunton in the role of the Provincial Lady. It's very funny. Which has honestly got to be a huge plus in its favour. So I read Diary of a Provincial Lady, you probably read it in a day. It's very funny. Everyone who's ever recommended it to me has recommended it to me saying, you'll love this book, it's just incredibly funny. And it is incredibly funny. And it was written in 1930. It has all the, what we would now perhaps think of as the Bridget Jones diary style. Oh, yeah, I wondered about that. And it's clearly in a line. She said it's clearly in a line from Diary of a Nobody by uh, Grace Smith as well. So you can see it in that tradition. I'm just going to read a couple of bits. There's loads of really funny book bits and pieces in Diary of a Provincial Lady. Uh, For instance, November the 11th. I'm asked what I think of Harriet Hume, but I'm unable to say, as I have not read it. Have a depressed feeling that this is going to be another case of Orlando, about which was perfectly able to talk most intelligently until I read it and found myself (laughs) unfortunately unable to understand any of it. Uh, There's another one here, November the 14th. Arrival of Book of the Month choice and am disappointed. History of a place I am not interested in by an author I do not like. (laughs) Put it back into its wrapper again and make fresh choice from recommended list. Find on reading small literary bulletin enclosed with book that exactly this course of procedure has been anticipated and that it is described as being, quotes, the mistake of a lifetime. (laughs) And much annoyed, although not so much at having made possibly mistake of a lifetime as that depressing thought of our all being so much alike that intelligent writers can apparently predict our behaviour with perfect accuracy. So it's really, it's got that really chatty and funny thing going on. But I hadn't realised as well, it's beautifully, like all good comedy, perhaps, apart from that of Jerry Lewis, um, it's very melancholy. Yeah. That it has a real, quite modern, I think, sense of, we would say that the provincial lady suffers from low self-esteem and a neglectful husband (laughs) and servants that she can't quite control and feels awkward with constantly so there's the kind of comedy of social embarrassment as well but also i hadn't realized that this is a properly feminist text that it was commissioned by the feminist journal time and tide in 1930 and you can read it as an absolutely fascinating account of a kind of self-deprecating english woman's struggle to be valued for the things that she was good at with laughter and with a kind of melancholic thing shot through it. Um, I, I really loved it. I really loved it. And the, the sadness of it is, because it's called Diary of a Provincial Lady, and, you know, it has a kind of feminist subtext to it, it's hard to think that many men pick it up and read it mm. and, and enjoy it. And, but, you, but they love it. The, 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 the rhythm of the good comic writing is all about rhythm. And the rhythm of it is fantastic. Really, really wonderful book. Uh, so that's what I've been reading. John? It's a, it's a, lovely, it's a lovely idea that, that the, um, are you, are you going back and visiting these narratives, though, don't you think, it, that, like you did with the, um, the Priestly book? I mean, I th- yeah, I, I with mean, English there is, there is something extraordinarily vivid. I mean, maybe the diary form is good as well. I mean, I, I just was thinking that Bridget Jones, which is coming out, the new movies is coming out, it's hopelessly nostalgic now. The 1990s feels like a very long time ago when, you know, mm. your, your worry was finding a, 
a man who was prepared to make a commitment. I mean, in the age of Tinder and sort of Snapchat, I mean, Bridget Jones seems almost as kind of yeah. quaint as E.M. Delafield. Yeah. Uh, it's that sort of speed of whether it's something about writing stuff down and making a book out of it. I love Bridget Jones's diary, you know. I think that is actually a very underrated book as a piece of comic writing, that it can be massively commercially successful. But also, again, the rhythm of it is absolutely terrific. And knowing what yeah. Helen Fielding's background was, yeah. is... No, it's a, it was a properly funny book. I went to the launch party. Did you? Yeah, there were 17 people there. <laughs> Did you pull? <laughs> As I just what come back drink? from what, my what, honeymoon, what? no. <laughs> Units of alcohol consumed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, quite, yeah. What have I been reading? Is that what you were asking me? Sorry. <laughs> I was going to ask you that. I'll tell you what, I've been rereading because uh, uh, this is a little bit of a plug, but we're publishing in, in about a month's time an amazing book called First Light, which is a celebration of the work of Alan Garner, who is 80 or has just turned 80. And one of the things about reading all these extraordinary essays, and there are essays from Philip Pullman and David Armand and Stephen Fry, but also archaeologists like Richard Morris and Mark Edmonds who've worked with them. Rowan Williams has put a poem in there. Neil Gaiman's written a brilliant piece. It's, it's a great collection. But the thing that struck me is the book that comes up again and again. I mean, if you say Alan Garner, most people will say Weird Study of Rosinkerman, mm-hmm. or they might say The Owl Service. Yeah. Or if they're kind of real Garner fans, they might say Redshift. But the book that comes up again and again in the essays is a book called... It's actually four books, the Stone Book Quartet, which was published in the late 70s. Late 70s. Between 76 and 78. And it's actually, it is the book that I kind of go back to with Garner. It's just it's a completely remarkable sequence of four stories, taking four young people's stories that are really members of his family, starting I mean, over the course of a century mm. in rural Cheshire... Um, His uh, grandfather and his great-grandfather were were stonemasons. And the book starts, the stone book of the title, starts with an extraordinary story. Mary, the the character in the story, her father is a stonemason. He ends up taking her under the ground. And they descend and find these extraordinary uh, Paleolithic cave paintings down there. He shows them it's a special place. It's a beautifully written thing. And she is desperate to want to read. She was a maid in the Stanley's house. The Stanley's up in Cheshire with the, the big knobs of the area. And uh, there was a sort of a presumption that women would, wouldn't learn to read. So it's a beautiful passage towards the end of the book where the, her, her father, you, taking a kind of a, a pebble, a cobble, fashions a book out of stone and gives it to her. And I just read this little beautiful little piece. He weighed them in his hand, tested them on his thumbnail until he found the one he wanted. He pushed the others aside and took the one pebble and work quickly with candle and firelight, turning, tapping, napping, shaping, twisting, rubbing and making, quickly, as though the stone would set hard if he stopped. He had to take the pitcher from his eye to his hand before it left him. There, said Father, that'll do. He gave Mary a prayer book, bound in blue-black calfskin, tooled and stitched and decorated. It was only by the weight that she could tell it was stone and not leather. It's better than a book you can open, said Father. A book only has one story. That making of an object and that sense of craftsmanship is kind of what these stories are. They're incredibly mm. simple, going through the generations and ending up in Tom Fobble's day, which is the last one of the sequence in the Second World War, where they find shrapnel from a crashed bomber. Each story has got an object in it. One's going underground, another is going up a steeple where there's an mm-hmm. extraordinary clock, another's where the, the, it's a, there's a forge. And they're all linked 
he achieves in it, I think, something that is almost impossibly difficult to do. Total simplicity of language, there's quite a lot of Cheshire dialect in it, but the sense of a family history passing down things that matter from generation to generation. Philip Pullman writes brilliant about him being a craftsman. You know, it's often said, there was not one word out of place. This feels exactly like that, that passage of yeah, yeah. that he's made something incredibly beautiful and luminous, and that is utterly timeless. We, I mean, we were talking about, weren't we, the current uh, popularity of books about nature. Yeah. And Garner is kind of one of the godfathers, isn't he, of that movement? I mean, his connection with the land and with the traditions of the land. Yeah, I mean, it is an extraordinary thing. He took himself out of... He still likes to boast that he's in statue pupillari because he didn't finish his degree at Oxford because he decided he wanted to write stories and he left Oxford in the end of his second year and found this house in Cheshire, which being Garner turned out that Oddfellows, the Manchester Oddfellows, had a fund and he bought it for about 500... I think some £510. Yeah. And then he... It turns out that, of course, it was a medieval longhouse. And it turns out that the medieval longhouse was built on a, on a Bronze Age barrow. And it turns anyway, that this... And I've gone, I've done archaeological digs and with, with <laughs> Alan in this place. It's incredible. And it, so it's been inhabited for at least 10,000 years, this place. So you know that thing where people look outside for inspiration with their stories? All Alan's ever done is, is drawn... Huh. complete inspiration. He Every single potsherd, every little flint, everything that he's dug up in his garden has been collected. He also did this other mad thing, which he moved a medieval uh, apothecary's house from across 20 miles away, which was going to be demolished. And he got, managed to persuade an architect. He managed to persuade Billy Collins of, to fund it, the, pu the publisher of William Collins. Yeah. And they took it down beam by beam and then reconstructed it. And it is the most incredible place. It's the only place I know where you can sit inside the fire. There's a, there's a fireplace where you sit inside and look right up. <laughs> I mean, everything you would imagine Alan Garner's house to be. And he's, you know, he's also famously struggled. There were f most of 15 years where he wrote very little because of his depression. And the story of how he got out of his depression is yeah. too long yeah. for here. But the Stone Book is the one, if you ever want to say to anybody... Here's the Alan Garner. The later books are complex and difficult and brilliant. Yeah, yeah. The young books, the, the earlier books, Elidor and the Weirdstone, are very much still going to be read mostly by kids. But he never well, really thought about it. Mm, he was writing yeah. for kids. I was, we were talking about... We watched um, the TV adaptation of The Owl Service, Amazing. late 60s adaptation, right, with Gillian Hills in it. Yeah. And we said when we were watching it, not only is it impossible to think of it being made for children... Yeah. Terrifying. Then or now, Terrifying. it's impossible to be thinking of it being made for adults now. No, it is the know. most peculiar, scary, psychosexual yeah. thing. And we and, and we were also talking about how Alan Garner... She wants to be flowers and they are making her peppers. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> we were talking about how Alan Garner, though, comes out of a period now long gone for children's literature where, probably this runs from the 60s through to the early 80s, yeah, well, where educationalists and librarians are in charge yeah. and have links to what gets broadcast on TV but, and Jack and Nori, and mm. there's a kind of raise-your-game children But also, also that, that extraordinary generation were all... And this is, why, this is why also I wanted to talk about Stonebook, because there is a sort of Balkan link, is that... They were all children during the war. This immense, you know, whether it's Leon Garfield, Joan Aitken, Alan Garner, yeah, yeah. Penelope Lively, this a huge out 
outpouring, extraordinary explosion of brilliant writers, Susan Cooper, brilliant writers for children that come into their own in the 60s because they were, they were children themselves during the, the, the war years. You kind of feel that in Ghana, that there is definitely a sense that there is something about the experience of war meant, and maybe it was because they were being sent, sent away, off as, around as, the country, yeah. your parents disappeared, your yeah, father and jeopardy, went abroad. Genuine jeopardy in your mm. childhood, and, mm. and it kind of forced you to... No, I had an owl service made for Angus. No. Yeah, I commissioned. I commissioned. I we. I have eight extraordinary owl Brilliant. plates. I've got one. Oh. Of the orig- I have one of the original plates on my wall that Alan <laughs> gave me, which is among my most treasured possessions. Wow. I mean, it's just a. It's actually it was his, it was his wife's <laughs> Griselda's. It was. Kind of, well, we've got the DVD. <laughs> <laughs> we've talked about books enough. Now for some capitalism. Rowan, Nigel Balkin, Darkness Falls from the Air. Do you want to say a little bit about why you selected this for us? Yes, this book was given to me at a very sort of formative stage of my reading. I was 25 and I suppose some had been a bit self-selected. You know, I was an English lit student, so I read Jane Austen and George Eliot and all that sort of thing. And uh, there's this sort of period of writers that you've missed because they're just not books your parents they have. Or, yeah, and they're not in the canon. And uh, when I met my husband-to-be, this was the first book he gave me, which is curious choice, considering <laughs> <laughs> that what this book is largely about <laughs> is about a man who lets his young wife have an affair with someone else, set against the backdrop of the Blitz. Um, yeah, I suppose the irony of that didn't quite escape me at the time, but more than that, it's, a, it's an absolutely brilliant bit of writing. And what I've sort of come to think of it as, it's like Graham Greene's The End of the Affair, except it's a bloody brilliant book rather than a slightly overwrought, ridiculous one. I, I put the two... Try and compare them. No, 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 I'll make a case for this. Um, I think the end of the affair with all its sort of, you know, passion over talking about onions and, you know, no one can be real in love unless they're sort of consumed with jealousy and then the absolute ridiculous thing. I mean, the, both of them concern the same love triangle, really. You have the civil servant husband who seems a bit sort of dull when you first meet him or you're certainly sort of conscientious then you have an attractive writer who's you know the sort of you know devilish lover the the man who appears on the scene and tempts the young and uh, beautiful wife into having an affair now in Graham Greene that's all pretty standard business and the lover is the hero and he's a writer don't you know and then later there's this absolute (laughs) absurd deviation when 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 the husband thinks the wife's having an affair with someone else and do you know who that someone else is it's god it's <laughs> bloody god um re- review if you don't know what i'm talking about just just read it but it's it's sort of ridiculous and then you read darkness falls from the air and it's so much more interesting and subtle a book but it, people don't tend to think that it because it's also funny there's this wonderful strain of sardonic humor that runs through it which always means a book is taken less seriously but it's it's, to me, an extraordinarily moving book about very British emotion, uh, which means that it must mm. be suppressed and you have mm-hmm. to read it between the lines. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but here, the voice that you're most with is the civil servant, the conscientious husband, who could be dubbed as actually fascinating and rather heroic and defends himself with humour. And there are a lot of sort of duels that are really conversational duels between him and the lover. Mm. And uh, and then you have the younger wife who is a little bit sketchily drawn. I have to say that's probably the weakness in the book is that Marsha, 
you, you always feel you're a little bit outside her and maybe all her motivation. But it, it's a fantastic triangular relationship against the Blitz. Putting aside just for a moment the ad hominem attacks on uh, <laughs> uh, the end of the affair, which is one of my favourite novels. I'm going to move. Uh, oh, it really is. It really is. Uh, but I'm going to interrupt you just for a moment so I can, for people listening, uh, we do a thing on Batlisted where we read the blurb on the back of the book, just yeah. as a way of not giving away spoilers, but just giving people the setting of the book. This is, and I'm reading off the back of an edition which, uh, John, <laughs> Are you responsible no, no, for this edition no, this of okay, so Dinosaurs in the Air? This is really amusing. We just have a bit more background. Before Rowan's husband-to-be was Rowan's husband-to-be, he went out with my wife. My now wife, not 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 at the same time. I wasn't married to my wife. <laughs> my, my hands are shaking, listeners. And as just, I realise what just, we've stumbled on. Just to add more kind of mystery to the whole tale, he also gave Rachel, my wife, <laughs> Darkness falls from oh, the air, and he and she also completely fell in love with it. So Rowan and I sort of weirdly, I read it for the first time at Rachel's recommendation, just as you read it. But the fonz et origo of all our love for Vulcan comes from Angus McKinnon, who was also the military editor at Castle when I was running Castle, and when when we were doing the Castle paperbacks, very without any hesitation from either of us, we brought back into print. And I think Angus, what that blurb you wrote, I'm almost certain that. Okay, I'm going to read this blurb. I'm going to read this blurb. So this, so this edition, so so I'm holding an edition, which is published by Cassell Military Paperbacks, Castle, Balkin Castle, Military Paperbacks, published and brought back into print by several people who love the book. Why then did you decide to put this hideous cover on it? Honestly, you have no idea. Don't let me. I mean, we. All right, we'll come. We'll come back to it. It's a terrible jacket. Okay, we'll come back to it. This, this is isn't much better, to be this honest. Is the Here we go. As the classic novel of the London Blitz, Darkness Falls from the Air captures the chaos, absurdity and ultimately the tragedy of life during the bombardment. Bill Sarratt is a civil servant with an ostentatious lack of concern. He spends the war whining and dining expensively, occasionally sauntering out into the Blitz with witty remarks about the shattered nightlife of London's West End. But beneath this cheerful facade lies the real strain of war. As the bombs begin to fall closer and closer, Sarratt's wife, Marcia, takes on a lover, a manipulative literary poseur, is there any other kind, named Stephen. (laughs) Sarratt tries to laugh off the affair, but while his cynical wit may crackle and spark, the bombs continue to fall, and his life begins literally to crumble around him. <laughs> literally to crumble no, around that, him. Are we, are we yeah, sure? No, no, I don't think Angus Mook, it couldn't have written couldn't that. Couldn't have written I that, don't think, and I also, I no. don't think that's quite right, because in fact, it's not ostentatious, sort of. He's not, no, 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 he's no. not going around just jollying it up during the Blitz. He's acutely no, aware no. of the tension of, you know, buying fine wine during that yeah. time, and he talks about that a lot, yeah. doesn't he? Well, I think that's a serviceable blurb. No, no, I don't think it's that good. It's better than this one, which I'm not going to read. Right. But look, I, I think that you have two really remarkable things here and I have to say I again really enjoyed it because I could remember almost nothing except for the at one point the word uxoriousness is used (laughs) Uh, the husband who loves his wife too much but the point is it's it's an extraordinary it was written and published in 1942 so it's a it's a novel that was not the war recollected in tranquility this was written when you know the blitz was still happening it, it, it has that incredible immediacy I love the fact that you get you get no background I mean terse 
description is it's not even terse i mean there's just nothing you're just thrown mm. into this on one side of the book it's yes minister you know yes. it's just all about the ludicrousness of trying to get anything done in a country that is at war and the bureaucracy that has served it perhaps well in, in the interwar years is now creaking horribly and sarat is a young turk i mean you feel he's the kind of you know he's definitely the coming man wants people but you have no real idea what the scheme is that mm. he's trying to there's no detail given you so it's it's an amazing, I think, an amazing and moving book about the sort of casualness with which people kind of war happens, and gradually the raids get longer and bigger and more violent. And, and we should say as well that the, I, I mean, I felt the descriptions yeah. of the raids themselves are completely extraordinary. Yeah, to be to be written in the moment, as it were, yeah. and be so evocative and so powerful about bringing home the experience of the Blitz. And the way he ramps that up, I think, is extraordinary. The, the fact that, you know, they get the, the two main characters, Marcia and, and Bill, get more concerned. They're very blasé and going out to restaurants to begin with. But actually, there's not that much whining and dining. It gradually becomes darker and darker. But it's that, and then it is this incredibly, um, inc- it seems to me, incredibly... This is not brief encounter. I mean, this is a really modern, grown-up uh, kind of attempt to deal with a problem that afflicts, I should imagine, many marriages, which is that you know one one partner's having an affair and the other one's per- trying to deal with it. The guy, you know, Stephen, I would say, is not a terribly brilliantly written character. He's a sort of slightly. Oh, I think Stephen's. I think he's. A, I think he's a great comedic creation. I yeah, think he's maybe. totally recognisable. You Slightly see like him, a grown-up Fotheringham Thomas. But you I see thought. him in Soho every night. <laughs> yes, true. Just you know, at the moment, I mean, he's yeah. completely contemporary that, in many that, ways. That, that's true, and I, I, but also I do think that Bill is is uh, his put downs are great and his. The, the, the way they te- he teases out his kind of own complexity of feelings about what's going on, where you think he must be really, he must, he can't really. But also, think this I think good. you are supposed to think that under other circumstances, had there not been a blitz, had there not been that idea you could die at any second, he might not have been so lenient. He might have reined her in a bit. He mm-hmm. might have made more protest. I mean, I think this is the thing that this affair has played out against the blitz is also one of the explanations. I mean. Clearly, he's a man who talks about, I'm not going to lock the doors. They're always mm, going to be open mm, yeah. for you. But I, I think that, that you're also supposed to see this as, as a product, too, of circumstances, that that gives him a sort of, you know, he just feels, what's the point? What's the point under this circumstance to suddenly, you know, try and limit someone's life, which might be limited anyway? We should also say that in so much of this, of the character, uh, is conveyed... Um, via dialogue the description is is applied to um buildings and bombing raids mm-hmm. it's very good there's on buildings, a, br- isn't there's it? a brilliant yeah. but there's a brilliant quote here lp hartley author of the go-between reviewed one of the later novels and said balkin's characters only have to open their mouths to reveal a personality yeah. which is true and is also a great trick if you can pull it off very, very difficult to very difficult to get right, but actually that's one of the things in this novel that I I, I really loved. I thought the mm. the way that Stephen you can see Stephen yeah, yeah, without really without actually being told at length what he looks like. Well, in many ways, the best scenes are just two people talking. It's normally mm. Bill talking. He might be talking to Marsha. He might be talking to Stephen. You know, he might be talking to his friend, you know, um, to one of one of his friends from the ministry or something like that. When you're in that tight situation, you get yeah. everything you need to know is revealed then, isn't it, in those exchanges? There's a really brilliant, and I recommend, it's available on his website, 
and I, I recommend it to anyone listening here who wants to to find out more about Balkin. There's a brilliant essay by Clive James, oh, yeah. which was written in 1974, called "The Effective in- Intelligence Great. of Nigel Balkin," and he says he brilliant. He says several really interesting things. One, one of, in fact, I'm going to give them. I'm going to say these both now. Rowan, because I think you'll want to respond to both of them. Mm-hmm. And given the Graham Green thing, it's <laughs> fine. <laughs> so, so Clive James says, first of all, he says, the wartime novels were built to an artless-looking, highly refined formula of naturalistic conflict taking place within a thriller plot. Conflict on top of puzzle on top of background. Mm. And what James says in that essay is that if you read the novels that Balkin wrote before Darkness Falls from the Air, Small Bat Room and Mine Own mm. Executioner, they're nothing like those mm. novels. And if you read the novels after that, very few of them are like that. This is a formula that he hit upon accidentally in Darkness Falls from the Air, and then the subsequent books are attempts to reproduce that. Very successful. These books sell yeah, really literally successful. hundreds of thousands of copies. They're very, very successful. I, so I, I question thriller, because it, though it has elements of that, they're never chased <laughs> up, and there's a moment when someone, there's an implication that someone in the ministry is a spy, and they have to, everyone who uses this particular sort of typewriter has to yeah. give a sample. And then it never goes anywhere. Yeah, it never, it never goes anywhere. Anyway. So I think it's a kind <laughs> of anti-thriller. It gives you some... Well, as Matthew said, he said nothing, Matthew said to me this morning, nothing bloody happens in it. <laughs> I, I think that was my, if I may uh, express a reservation. <laughs> My reservation about this novel and about Small Back Room is that they are they the thrills are deferred. You know, you're right, Rowan. That they they he makes you wait for the thrills, and a lot of time is spent with quite interchangeable. Um, bureaucrats sitting in offices. Yeah. I think I think Clive got it all wrong with this. I think this is like a chess game. And it's like watching tiny little yeah. moments happen mm. between people. And what you really wonder, it's really about will Marsha sort of, will she be totally conned by Stephen? Will she move in with him? Will she yeah. not come back? Or is Bill's very long game, which becomes increasingly like this bit of elastic that might snap, he lets her go and lets her go a bit more and a bit more. Will that tactic work? And it's, I find that fascinating to watch. Because she keeps on asking for more when she knows she yeah, shouldn't just yeah. another weekend. There's also the brilliant sense, isn't there, that Bill, and it's true of um, the character of Sammy in the small back room as well, uh, it, that they are not, in, not <laughs> as in control of themselves or the situation mm. as the way they talk. No, that, yeah. that, that, that sort uh, of assumed uh, confidence yeah. that Bill has is very... Because the, the, the scene, without giving too much of you know, spoiler, spoilery stuff away, but the kind of dramatic scene rests on him surprising Marcia by asking her to stay. And there's that... It's, it's, I thought that was just brilliantly written. Mm. Again, the, I think the dialogue in this is... Is, is great because of that sense of exactly that sense of he's always trying to be smart and flip and, and come up with a good one-liners and then quite often he doesn't he never quite best mm. Stephen he, yeah. he gets quite cross yeah. with the fact that he his emotions actually prevent him to, from, from but actually then there's a fascinating duality because when he says the wittiest thing or the best thing or the truest thing either to Stephen or in the ministry when he's saying it to a minister when yeah. he sort of forgets himself and doesn't cover up the fact that he has this sort of aim that he wants to best the person he's talking to, then he loses. Yeah. And he has to, he knows he should pretend to be a bit more stupid in order to win and he can't do it. And yeah. I find that 
very, very true to life. Yeah. There's this other, I'm just going to give you this other quote because it really made me laugh when I was reading it. This Clive James essay, written in 1974, <laughs> as discussed. Clive James quotes a brilliant bit of Balkin, uh, one of Balkin's heroes from one of these books, complaining about uh, how if only, um, if only uh, more women had been to public schools instead, more male public schools instead of wearing skirts. They'd be a damn sight easier to get along with. And uh, Clive James says, it is said that intelligent women dislike Balkin's books and reading stuff like that, you can see why. Yeah. There's quite a lot of talk about being spanked on the bottom, isn't there? There the is, sort yes. of misdemeanours and... And his and women flirtation being... with, the, with the, the, his secretary, you know, kind of saying, put your hair behind your ears, wear your hair behind yeah. your ears. And yet... I think he, he I, the reason why it doesn't, when you read it now, the reason why it seems old fashioned but not offensively so, <laughs> I think, anyway, is that that gap between what the character is saying and his inability to manage his emotions at all times. So the surface is one thing. It's a very interesting, kind of very British, almost hard boiled thing. Yeah. You know, that you, the surface is telling you one thing, mm. but everything underneath is pulling yeah. in the other direction. I, I think that's what I love, because you could say, and when people don't like this book, and you, you know, if you look at Goodreads or something, people go, whoa, this man's letting his wife have an affair. And, you know, they really <laughs> just cannot <laughs> comprehend this. So therefore yeah. they despise him or think his emotions aren't deep. And in fact, it's yeah. very clear that his emotions run incredibly deep, that he loves his wife with all his heart, that she is the centre of his life and yet he also knows that to love her properly he wants to give her the freedom that he feels she needs at that moment and that seems to me the most generous thing one human being can do for another to give them freedom um, i mean i think that's i think that's absolutely true there's, there's there's a couple of scenes in the book where he he writes you know the scene where they're the, with the germans where oh, he, i love that which, scene. which is which is kind of brilliant and there's this great bit it's well worth says, reading out he says we have no small virtues at all we're talking about the english about the english um we have no small virtues at all we're lazy complacent undisciplined and generally deplorable we only manage to carry on at all because we've got a certain genius for living in the world it must be very irritating for other people who have to work hard for their effects <laughs> <laughs> which is sort of weirdly kind of i mean it, uh, i th- i think that scene and then the scene at the boho the bohemian party where you know he <laughs> the guy with the red jacket and the bright mustard yellow trousers. mustard oh, trousers yeah. on yeah. and it's it the thing is bill sharrett is he's trying to win the war you can feel there's that thing we if we this is serious and why are you lot just sort of prancing around being being idiots it's not good enough or why are the ministers still you know slightly kind of on the book slightly corrupt slightly inefficient I mean, I, 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 and I think at the same time, he's he's not he's not as smart as he thinks he is. He's trying desperately hard yeah. to make that relationship work under yeah. terrible circumstances. What I found was interesting about it was the uh, so the words in it that he uses that Bill Sharrett uses. Oh, is it that's name Bill Sharrett? Yeah. Um, it's the same language my father uses. My eighty-six-year-old father <laughs> uses. So lots of the words like to grouse about something. That's something my a word my dad would use <clears> on a daily basis to be bucked about something. <clears throat> He's bucked quite a lot, isn't he? Yeah. But there's also a kind of... Bung-ho! There's a kind of attitude of that generation which is to do with the frustration with bureaucracy. So it's a kind of non-political frustration with government that doesn't manifest itself in being kind of overtly left-wing or overtly right-wing. It's just a kind of fed-upness with the way things are. And you get that with Bill Sharrett. He's kind of like... 
But I think we all, we all hit service. that point. Like we all eventually become grumpy telegraph readers and we all hit this point of grumpiness. And I, I thought some of it was extraordinarily... Well, most of this book, I think, still feels to me exactly the sort of, you know, emotionally, the core of it feels very contemporary. And uh, I think that is what's so yeah. remarkable about it. Yeah, it, and you, it, ha- you have this thing that he was working in a ministry, the Ministry for Food himself, so he was dealing with all this absolute horseshit. And you know, he, there's this lovely little passage where... Um, where he's talking to sort of Lennox, who is his arch enemy, supposedly, who's the man who blocks all his plans. Um, I think we might possibly get this through, he said. The secretary seemed quite oncoming. I didn't say anything. Have you left him something that he can disagree with, said Lennox? You always want to do that. Something obvious that he can cross out. He'll like it much better then. I don't think so, I said. Mm, pity, said Lennox. You should always remember to do that. I said, I sometimes wonder if this is a war or a nursery romp. But you sort of think that's just pure yes minister. And there's this, you know, this, this idea that you can't get things through, you can't get them to happen, and that it will be compromised. You have a brilliant idea, you put it through various committees, and there's this key thing that happens, which happens now when you sort of think about almost any policy that people try to sign business up for, that someone goes, oh, we don't need to make it compulsory. Yeah. It can be a voluntary code. I mean, they're all mm. gentlemen. Everyone's going to say they can regulate that themselves. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's. I mean, they're, they're pretty hard to write. Read those passages. We should talk Shall I about. Say a bit about Balkin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, Nigel Balkin's born in 1908. Uh, he seems to have been good at everything. That's he. He, he excelled at school. Uh, he went to Peterhouse, Cambridge, where he was an exhibitioner and prizeman in natural science. Uh, he um, graduated and then worked for the National Institute of Industrial Psychology for five years in the early 30s, during which time he was a consultant to uh, J.S. Roundtree and Sons, the chocolate manufacturer. And he claimed to be responsible for the success both of the Aero and Kit Kat brands. (laughs) Um, um, He wrote four books of non-fiction based on his uh, punch columns, and he wrote 15 novels, the first of them in 1934. Uh... Then this trilogy we were talking about, Darkness Falls from the Air, The Small Back Room and Mine Own Executioner. And then in 1947, all of which were huge commercial successes and critical mm. successes. Um, uh, and then in 1947, he wrote um, an, a novel called Lord, I Was Afraid, um, which was his favourite book in his work. Um, also his least accessible, completely unlike anything he'd written before. Um, an analysis of British society between the wars told by seven characters almost entirely in dialogue. Um, one critic reviewed it and says, Mr Balkin's dynamic is elbow grease, and the sooner he realises it, the better. <laughs> Which is a bit, is a bit brutal on old Nige. And um, Anthony Burgess loved it, however. Um, and then he writes several uh, more novels he carries on writing novels Uh, the last of his novels uh, is is published in 1969 Uh, it's called Kings of Infinite Space and it was commissioned by NASA that's how that's how far he'd fallen that he that he he could generate sales of about 30,000 copies per book which now would be extraordinary Um, but that he was um, the NASA approached him and said well you're a you're a jobbing Mm. writer knock us out a novel to celebrate 10 years of the space race Mm. and he did it um and he he also writing school as well wasn't he he was yes he very dubious writing school yeah um his first marriage broke up following a partner swapping arrangement 
Yeah. Well, so there may hardly, be elements of truth in yeah. hardly surprising. But also, but, uh, when, when this book was written, when Darkness Falls in the Air was written, she was having a fair. That was with an artist, wasn't it? Yeah, Before that's right. That, there, was a compo- there was a composer. Yeah, yeah. So you can see why he didn't like these kind of smarmy, artsy, charmy, artsy types. But also, the, 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 but also, Balkin was very uh, so a very public author as well. He was a, a regular panelist on things like Any Questions and the Brains Trust. So people, I, I'm going somewhere with this. I'm quite fascinated by this. But he also wrote a lot of screenplays yeah. he wrote um, the, he wrote the screenplay for Mandy the incredible Alexander McKendrick Ealing film yeah. uh, incredibly sensitive and um, a, it's a wonderful film he wrote the um, he wrote the screenplay for the extraordinary film The Singer Not The Song uh, which it, you, you listeners may be familiar with because it's a peculiar Spanish western <laughs> with John Mills as a priest That's and right. Dirk Bogard as an outlaw who wears exclusively leather. Look at it, singing up the song. And um, he also wrote the first draft of the screenplay for the Liz Taylor and Richard Burton Cleopatra. Yeah, I, know, um, I love that. Uh, the, the point being but that we the are... the man who never was too. He did, amazing he did, which won a BAFTA. Yeah. 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 So he has this career, uh, these extraordinary careers as a personality, as a very su- critically and commercially successful novelist, as an award-winning screenwriter, all these things. And yet, if you said to somebody now, who wrote Darkness Falls from the Air? Most people probably wouldn't know. Wouldn't know yeah, that, no. he, that, he, mm. that he clearly was very successful in his own lifetime and then that seems it, to have vanished. That's like the Clive James point, isn't it? He says, you know, he was called a brilliant popular novelist yes. and that's always a, here yeah. it's a very damning phrase well, isn't it's like it? popular we were talking novelist. about you know Anita Bruckner last week we were saying yeah. she'd written a book every two years instead of every year yeah, exactly. she'd have been a lot more fated and, and successful well like like Bruckner I mean not all Balkin's books are great I mean there are ones I can yeah. really leave so mm. I'd say there's about four or five I love but you, know. you also wrote a novel didn't you called A Way Through the Wood yeah which is also because like this is like the end of the affair that's like if you took the great Gatsby and said, but what happened afterwards? Because someone has run over, <laughs> there's, right. a, there's a That's rich right. man's car Very that is great. all brought into the frame, a love triangle, but, but that completely follows the next step, you know, how it unfolds, who's guilty, what the repercussions are. I, I must say, I'd love to read Lord, I was afraid. Yeah, so do I. I was I, petrified. I, I was really bad. <laughs> <laughs> it sounded fantastic. It sounds like a crazy yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But you you get to do one of those once, yeah. <laughs> as it turns out. And it's know. on his uh, gravestone. Lord, is I'm it? afraid is the yeah. inscription. Yeah. Is that right? Because his wow. gravestone is an open book, isn't it? Mm. Is it? Yeah. In Hampstead, Hampstead, isn't it? Hampstead. Yeah, yeah, in Hampstead. Uh, there's so many great. I mean, we should re- maybe Rowan get you to read some of the other stuff that you like in it. I, I just love this is a this is a really great bit of dialogue. This is Marcia talking about Stephen to <laughs> Bill Sarratt. Stephen's so damn good at making you feel helpful. One of the things I, I quite enjoyed doing was trying to read out in sort of in, in kind of 1940s clipped. Deborah Kerr. Deborah Kerr. Should we all talk like that? Yes, rather. Darling. Stephen's so damn good at making you feel helpful, said Marcia. He's completely shameless about it. He talks as though I were Mary, Queen of Heaven and so on. And of course, I fall for it. Of course you do, I said. What you don't realise is that whoever's being Stephen's damp shoulder at the moment is Mary, Queen of Heaven. There's no patent involved. <laughs> <laughs> I think I must be mad, said Marcia. It's the war, I said, or the weather. I mean, it, there's great dialogue, and, and all the way through, shot through with some... And, and that, as I say, that kind of sense that behind all the, the wisecracking, you know, there is a, you know there's, a, there's real pain in it. 
Probably the best dialogue, I think, is is between Bill and Stephen when yeah. they're kind of having that fight. And there's lots and lots of stuff about Stephen being in profile, uh, you know, and sort of always uh, yeah. putting his handsome profile yeah. and thing, or, or you know, working up some kind of mood that you everyone can decipher. You know, that he's gloomy or dour or lovelorn. Um, but uh, I, I think the first chapter, actually, in a way, is is something you could almost teach to people who wanted to write as a way of plunging you straight into something. The total immediacy, but all the little clues are there about everything. You have Bill introduced, and you know he's been at the ministry for ages. You have him looking at barrage balloons. Then you have him going for a drink with his best friend. Uh, I love that <laughs> this line where he says, uh, "I had a drink while I waited for Ted, and it went down very well." And I had another, and that went down very well too. <laughs> I told myself that I was beginning to drink too much. And ordered another. <laughs> you just think, yeah. you think, yeah. yeah, that's what you do, wouldn't you? In the there's, a, there's a Hemingway quote, though, isn't there, saying that the people don't drink enough in his books. They're always only having one or two, <laughs> yeah. and they're yeah. acting stupidly. When in fact, yeah, this Hemingway is, thinks they should be having uh, a lot more. And obviously, it, it turned into a problem for him as well. The yeah, he was an alcoholic in the end. As he got older. But this the, is a recurring theme on backlisted. <laughs> drunken writers, <laughs> surely not. Agents, yeah. Well, actually, you know, he only <laughs> those poor he, agents. He, actually, he only had two agents. He wasn't one of those people who got through loads and loads of agents. He had two agents. He, he changed from uh, I think David Hyam to is it A P Peters, whatever the right. forerunner of Peter. A D Peters. A D Peters. After when his marriage broke up, she so swapped agents just after that. So he wasn't, and then stayed with them for the rest of his career. Thing that <laughs> He was like he was very well liked, Borkin as well. Yeah. I, I was reading about it's him. It's just charming. It's man. fascinating again. It, you know, he, he, he's well liked. He's well reviewed. He sells quantities of books. <laughs> he wins Baftas, and yet when he goes, he dies in 1970, and then he's 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 gone. But he's kind of gone before that, hasn't he? And even if you look at his film career, he won a Bafta. He went to Hollywood. He drank an awful lot in Hollywood. He never had real great success there. Mm. You know, his name never wasn't on the final screenplay of Cleopatra. He never, he never really sustained that. It kind of sounds good on paper, but when you, you know, you you pick at it a bit, you realise actually it was a, it didn't quite work out for him as well as he'd hoped. I'd just like to read a bit from near the end of the book. This is, um, this is Bill has to has to um, get across London during a bombing raid. And I'm just going to read a bit, which is a fascinating mixture of all the things we've been talking about, the economy of style, the cinematic element of it, and the very British attitude to it. So I'm just going to read this. The breeze was blowing as though the whole thing was a blast furnace. I tripped over a hose, shoved out my hand to save myself and cut it on a broken window. It was nothing much. A shower of sparks came down and I had to brush them off. I missed one and smelt it singeing my hair. A bobby shoved a man in a raincoat and knocked him into the gutter. The man's hat fell off. He was bald. I don't know what it was about. I have worked right round the centre. That's great, isn't it? I have worked right round the centre of the city. I reckoned if I cut in soon, I should be about right. There was a terrific wallop quite close. I thought it was a bomb, but it was a gas main. I saw the fireman run back from it. It made a sort of triangle of flame about twenty or thirty feet high. There was a lovely smell of violets for a bit. I should think it was a scent factory. My hand was bleeding, so I put my handkerchief round it and held it in my hand. The air was very hot, and there was a sort of steady roar. I thought the whole place was done for. Now, the brilliance of that, in my opinion, is the... First of all, the speed, the short sentences, bang, 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 but also, also being willing to use really straightforward language. Mm. 
the air was very hot and there was a sort of steady roar. You don't listen to that and think, mm, that's too basic. You think, yeah, that get, get yeah. to it, get to it. Mm. Really, really brilliant writing, I think. I, I love the bit at the beginning when you first meet Marsha and Stephen because you don't know at that point. You don't know what Bill's relationship to Marsha is. And I love that. I love that your kind of little clues are given to you. He's having a drink with Ted and he says, how's Marsha? And Bill says, I knew what he meant, but I just said, oh, flourishing. And that ended that. And you, you sort of think, well, what's, what's that about? And then, mm. and then he phones. He doesn't, say, he doesn't say I phone home. He says he phones the flat. He gets Marsha. He asks her out for supper. And then there's a pause and he says, oh, is Stephen there? So he has to ask him too. And they're sort of sitting in this uh, restaurant when, when he looks up and sees them. Marsha and Stephen turned up a... Marsha and Stephen turned up a... Left out a word here, sorry. Marsha and Stephen turned up after about five minutes... Oh, no, I haven't, sorry. Sorry, sorry. Marsha and Stephen turned up about five minutes after I got there. I thought they made a pretty pair and didn't much like it. Marsha was all smoothed out and sparkling like women are after that sort of thing. <laughs> it's just isn't that brilliant? If, there's a better, brilliant. if there is a better description yeah. of a woman who's just had sex, all of literature, I really, I honestly don't know it. <laughs> and Stephen was looking big and handsome and haunted, and so like a, a creative artist that you wouldn't have thought he'd have the nerve to go around looking like that. They were very much together, and I felt like a stockbroker uncle taking the engaged couple out. And you think, what a brilliant, mm, so heartbreaking, good, yeah. poignant way to describe seeing your wife with another man. Can I do just a little bit? I love this. This is kind of climactic scene where he says, goodbye. Goodbye, said Stephen Bowing. He looked incredibly handsome. <laughs> I got a fit of the giggles going back to the office. There was a matter of fact, I was rather angry. Just, he does that all no, the time. Yeah. He does that. Yeah, yeah. No, that's great. Yeah, yeah, Somehow yeah. my real cracks at Stephen never came off properly. You couldn't hang Stephen. You could only give him a hell of a lot of rope and leave it to him. It was the handkerchief business which was giving me the giggles. That's when Stephen takes his handkerchief out and dabs his eyes. I kept saying to myself, there's richness, and giggling some more. But it wasn't really satisfying. I was always right, all right with Stephen until I wanted to hit really hard. And then somehow it never worked, and it just felt rather vulgar. He was funny all right, but he ought really to have been funnier than I ever found him. In a queer sort of way, he was a natural and naturals always have some sort of dignity, even if they're only natural skunks. It's so good, that. It is. It? He's just, he's, he's got such a great... I, uh, I've, I was thinking a lot about Chandler when I read, I read this. I think there is definite that similarities. That sort of, you know, because yeah, hard, yeah. hard-boiled, tough, the gut, but, you know... The, the, but but then underneath it is a there's very a, vulner- vulnerability, absolutely. right? Yeah. We were just watched um, yesterday, we, uh, we re-watched... Um, the Powell and Pressburger small back room small back room mm, film, so and I have to say that the that the it's fascinating how true they are. They change the ending of the book, but they're so true to the dialogue and the spirit of the dialogue. And David Farrow, who plays the the, oh. the Balkan hero, <laughs> I, I have a signed Rowan photograph of David Farrow. Yes, Spoonie. yeah, and one of David Niven, and then my two, you know, great oh. treasures. Oh yes, the the author David Niven, the author of the single most entertaining book ever written. Yeah, Moons of Balloon. Moons of Balloon. May I take the opportunity to recommend, as strongly and forcefully as I can, <laughs> David Niven's 
audiobook reading of The Moon's a Balloon. <laughs> Marvellous. I have it, I have it, oh. I have it on cassette. I bought it yes. at the service station. Oh, my God. <laughs> I did on the way to I'm Scotland. Going, and I'm, going, I'm going away with David Niven. But you will, <laughs> I wish you wouldn't. You, you, you <laughs> Listeners, you will literally laugh. I was angry and then sad. And you will literally I, cry I when he reads the greatest recording ever oh, made. Except perhaps Michael Jarvis reading Just William. Martin Jarvis. Martin Jarvis. Sorry, yeah. Martin. As we've veered away from <laughs> Balkin for a moment, Matthew, do you have a tenuous link that might bring us back? So I have, so I've got the tenuous link here, right here next to me, which is a box of black magic chocolates. Because the other thing that Nigel is well known for is for the creation of black magic chocolates. Well, 1933. So help yourself, everyone. And what's really interesting about black magic chocolates is the box. Chocolates up until this point were advertised with pictures of country cottages, with bucolic pictures of the English countryside. Then all of a sudden you've got this box which is saying, have these chocolates and come to bed with me. That's what Black Magic's all about. Oh. It's, it, they were created for... <laughs> Andy, you haven't had the chocolate. That's what it's all about. They were created for men to give as presents to women. And Nigel was the... He did all the research on it, so he was... Oh, they did... Um, yeah, they're the result of market research. Yeah. So they Amazing. asked men what kind of chocolates they would like to be seen with and women what type of chocolates they would like to receive and also the other thing about black magic which is brilliant Nigel Balkin was the first person to come up with the idea of including a little Map to the chocolate box no 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 absolutely my goodness. So he, he wins that's, BAFTAs, he writes novels. That's like the great Sid Caesar, Ryan, the guy who invented a wheel. He was an idiot. The guy who invented the other three, he was a genius. <laughs> you know, anyone can make chocolate, but, but to put a little map inside the and, box. But black magic is mm. fundamentally unchanged then since the 30s. Yeah, so the original box had 12 different flavours in it. Speaking of things Six that got changed, was only anyone else struck while reading the book by the all-night boots on Piccadilly? Yes, yeah. being totally. there during the yeah. Blitz. I, know. I mean, how often has that place always <laughs> been open when you need it? You know, you're desperate. You've got, you know, some terrible sort of fungal infection, and the only place in London you can go is the all-night boots. Do you think even you could probably buy a Blitz. box of Black Magic there as well? <laughs> So you know yeah. this book was not um, available from the Boots Lending Library <laughs> because it was considered too adult for just those reasons. You know the book that this did um, remind me of, bring this full circle, uh, is a different Graham Greene novel. It really reminds me of The Ministry of Fear, which is one of the, the more obscure Greene novels written during the war, tremendously good at evoking a London which is at the beginning of the Blitz, where the railings have been taken away around the parks, where people are still going to pubs because they haven't quite worked out what else to do, Hmm. um, how dangerous it's going to be. Because like this novel, it's on the cusp of the phony war and the real bombardment. And that's one of the brilliances, I I think, of this novel, actually. Perhaps... um, I mean, we can't say the extent to which it's deliberate because of when it's written, but it's fantastic how, as it goes on, um, London becomes more and more heavily bombed. It unravels, doesn't it? And and Mm. the things that they... Wandering the streets becomes a difficulty, and suddenly there are huge pits. And when, as you say, the difference between the West End 
in the in the the, the East End of London. Mm. There's a great line where he says that when he goes over to Stepney, it was far worse than anything I'd seen so far. In some of the really slum streets, the places hadn't waited to be hit; they'd just fallen down at the thought of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is yeah. you know quite dark humour yeah. that you when you're writing that in the middle of. But it's it's um I think I don't think I've read a book that's 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 carried that sense of gathering kind of um, jeopardy in quite the same way that you're it starts off that they're going as tourists and watching and isn't it sort of it's yeah you know they feel in control of it but then gradually as the as the narrative gets gets darker so does the you know the the, the bombing raids get longer they're working in offices where all the windows have been blown out mm. you suddenly yeah, yeah, yeah. sort of madness of trying to continue everyday life in an office everybody's tired because they've all been kept up all yeah, night through yeah, the stress yeah. and the bombing yeah Rowan could you give us one last little um, bit to read before we before um, we wind up I mean actually I don't think this is particularly archetypal but I just love the exchanges between uh, Stephen and Bill and I actually I sort of feel like I should probably assign them to two men because they're just so they're just so funny I think um, and so this is we'll start with uh, Stephen Marsha came to me this afternoon he said in his lovely deep voice she said it must end at once I knew she was right of course but I fought damn it a man must fight for his own life yes I said it seemed a reasonable idea <laughs> it was no good said Stephen Marsha's strong, stronger probably than you know. I knew I'd lost. He threw up his head and pointed his chin defiantly at the beer pools. (laughs) I did my best to face it, so did she. For a while we talked about it quite calmly, even happily in a way. It was only after quite a long time that we broke down. Both of you? I inquired. (laughs) We sat beside one another on the sofa holding hands like a pair of frightened children. (laughs) (laughs) It's so brilliant. I just love the way he takes apart the person who would be so easy to make the hero of this, the handsome, tortured poet, and he just renders him ridiculous. Well, on that frightened children (laughs) in the middle of the blitz, I think we should probably pull this to a close. Thanks to Rowan Pelling and, of course, to Matthew Clayton. And, of course, thanks once again to our sponsors, Unbound. You can get in touch with us on Twitter at, at @backlistedpod, on Facebook on the Backlisted Pod page and on the Unbound site at unbound.co.uk forward slash backlisted. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with another show in a fortnight. <laughs> Until then, it's good night from me. And I'd like to personally apologise to Graham Green. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think as I read the end of the affair after this, I can never like the end of the affair. If you prefer to listen to Backlisted without adverts, you can sign up to our Patreon. It's www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted. As well as getting the show early, you get a whole two extra episodes of what we call Lock Listeds, which is Andy, me and Nikki talking about the books, music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight.